It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In an experiment. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, improving machine vision and a new way to grow crystals. I'm Nicole. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. First up on the show, reporter Ali Jennings has been finding out how researchers are trying to speed up the way that machines interpret images. Those of you with smarter, uh, smartphones might find that your camera has software that identifies faces in your pictures. You might also find there's a little delay between pointing your phone at a face and the software recognising it's a face. For machines trying to decode images, this is a common problem. Currently, machine vision systems are slow. Typically, they're based on a frame-based camera that takes images, that's connected to a standard computer that does the classification. This is Thomas Muller. He's been rethinking the design of machine vision systems to speed up their classification of features in an image. This week in Nature, Thomas and his team present a new device that may be able to do just that. Our device takes the images and at the same time, so to say, tells you what this image shows. Uh, so it's extremely fast. So what we have demonstrated is classification, for example, within 40 nanoseconds, 50 nanoseconds. But I think, you know, you can even speed it up by, fa- by another factor of 1,000 or so. This would be millions of times faster than most machine vision systems, which generally operate on the order of milliseconds. To get such rapid classification, Thomas's device takes the software that conventional machine vision computers use and builds it into the hardware of the sensor itself. Conventional machine vision software uses artificial neural networks to identify features in an image. By tuning the strength of the connections between different parts of the network, 
These neural networks can learn to recognize important features, like your face, for example. Thomas's team built a camera where the individual light sensors, which they call pixels, can be tuned in the same way. In a standard camera, you you read out pixel by pixel. That's not what we are doing in in this chip. Instead, we just interconnect the pixels such that it forms a neural network itself. When this pixel network is correctly tuned, it can recognize simple features in an image without having to transfer all the data to a computer for processing. This makes it much, much faster than existing machine vision systems. But it might not be ready for your phone camera just yet. The way it is now is a very simple network that can detect simple objects. That's the limitation currently. Thomas thinks, though, that in future the sensor could be built with more pixels. Well, the next logical step would be, of course, to scale things up. It would allow to recognize much more complex images than what we have now. It would also make it more powerful to to recognize more details in images as the complexity of this network increases. So, will we see this new super fast sensor? Appearing in smartphones, Thomas is skeptical. These systems that we developed is not so much for the every, everyday life; it's rather for the scientific life. I would think. Thomas thinks his device would be best suited to imaging very fast-changing situations, such as turbulences in fluids, combustion processes, or how materials break. But when I talked to Young Chai. A researcher in artificial intelligence who was not involved in the study, he was excited about what such an invention could mean for machine vision technology. I would say this is a new concept people、uh, never proposed or demonstrated previously. I think、uh, the, this work actually it、uh, opened a new computing paradigm. Basically, computing is far away from the data source, but this work. It moves the computing very close to the data source. Young also thought that these kinds of devices could one day be used in surveillance systems, medical imaging, and even unmanned drones. And it's not just machine vision. The novel concept of having a sensor built as a neural network could be applied to many other technologies. This、uh, concept can be. Extended to many many other、uh, physical sensing, not only vision.、Uh, it could be audio, it could be some chemical, it could be、uh, electrochemical,、uh, even pressure. To get to this point, there are some challenges that will have to be overcome. For example, integrating these new sensor chips with conventional electronics could be problematic, as the chip's output is very new. And very different to what standard computer processes typically receive, but Thomas's device may have given us a glimpse of a faster, more efficient kind of computing. Now, if only it could help me take the perfect selfie. That was Ali Jennings speaking to Young Chai from Hong Kong Polytechnic University and Thomas Muller from the University of Vienna. You can find the full paper along with a news and views article. Over at nature.com. At the end of the show, we'll have an update on the contribution of climate change to the Australian bushfires. 
That's coming up in the news chat. Before that, it's time for the research highlights. Read this week by Tristan Varela. Dieting is not fun. But it's been known for a long time that drastically restricting calories can increase lifespan. Why this is, is a bit of an unknown though. Now, researchers in California reveal that certain changes in cell behavior may play a significant part in this anti-aging effect. To understand how calorie restriction wards off aging, the scientists studied 26 middle-aged rats that for 9 months ate 30% fewer calories than their siblings. After this long spell of calorie restriction, the authors found that the dieting rats had fewer cells associated with inflammation and had a genetic profile that was more like that of younger rats. The researchers think that this could lead to the development of strategies to live better for longer. Chew on that research at Cell. The traditional seaside summer holiday may soon become a thing of the past. New research suggests that beaches around the world are in grave danger of disappearing due to climate change. Shorelines are naturally expected to change over time, but after studying satellite pictures of Earth going back over 30 years, researchers have determined that rising sea levels, combined with the destructive power of storms, could result in the loss of almost half of the world's sandy beaches before the end of the century. Australia would be one of the hardest countries hit, with nearly 12,000 kilometers of their coastline at risk of severe erosion. Curbing our greenhouse gas emissions would be a huge help in preventing this beachless future. But we have to act fast. Take a trip to Nature Climate Change for more on that research. There's a reason that crystallography has led to more than 20 Nobel Prize wins. It's critical for determining the structure of many materials. But to do crystallography, you need to convert the material you're studying into a crystal. And not just that, this crystal has to be the right size and of high enough quality. That's not always easy to accomplish, but this week in nature, there's a new, unconventional way to cultivate crystals that could help. Nick's been finding out more. Cool, so uh, we're in the lab now. Yeah, show me around. So this is here, that is the robot. That's Nomi Chain. I went to her crystallisation lab at Imperial College London to understand more about how to grow crystals. The crystallisation used to be known as an art rather than a science, and it was a lot of trial and error. And people said, ah, it's only people who have got green fingers, they can do it. So people did all sorts of things, even sending to space. Nowadays, crystallisation is less trial and error but many materials are still incredibly difficult to crystallise. In broad terms, to make a crystal from a material, you have to have it dissolve in a solvent, then take the solvent away, forcing the material into a solid, crystal state. But simply growing a crystal is not enough. If you want to determine its structure using crystallography, there are specific requirements. It's got to be an ordered molecule. If the material is not ordered, you cannot x-ray it. Really, you need something that you can X-ray, and X-ray will go through and be able to analyze it. And you need it at a certain size that the X-ray beam can go through it. 
Once a material is dissolved, the first challenge is kickstarting the crystallization process. But this can be tricky. Stirring the solution has been shown to help, but this can make it more difficult to get that all-important ordered structure, as it's easier for an ordered crystal to grow when the molecules are still. But Bartosz Grabowski thinks he's found a way to stir the solution and still create ordered crystals. Here we also have an additive, a polymer that is, uh, in most cases, is actually charged. And we started observing at some point a very strange phenomenon. All of a sudden, when you start stirring this, you crystallize the substance better. In fact, stirring the crystal with the charged polymer seemed to grow crystals that were even better than those grown by conventional techniques. In terms of size, this offers significant benefits, right? Now, in terms of quality, the quality seems very, very nice. Bartosz's crystals grew with that vital ordered structure. As with all techniques, the size of the crystal depends on how long you grow it for. But Bartosz's spinning method allowed the crystals to grow a lot more quickly. So how did the system actually work? Physics, physics. Yeah, the physics is actually quite non-trivial. Quite. Like any other crystallization method, Bartosz's technique works by drawing the solvent away from the material of interest. And this is where the polymer comes in. Because it's charged, it acts like a sponge, attracting and binding the solvent. What's more, as the solution is spun around, the polymer stretches, which pushes the process forward. When you stretch and expose, you know, like uh, more charged groups to the solvent, well, it needs more solvent. So it needs to take the solvent away from somewhere else. Well, it's taking it from this something that we want to crystallize. So this something that we want to crystallize now sees itself, you know, sort of naked. It doesn't have enough solvent to stay in solution. As the crystal grows larger, it stretches the polymer more, which exposes more charged groups, which makes the crystal grow larger, which stretches the polymer more. You can see where this is heading. The more extended it is, the more spongy it becomes for solvent. And it becomes more extended, more deformed around bigger crystals. You see, it's like a feedback mechanism. At the moment, only a few types of materials have been tried with Bartosz's technique, and it's unlikely to work for everything. But so far, barring a little tweaking, Bartosz hasn't had a problem making this technique work for a range of materials, from proteins to scientific reagents. Even if this method doesn't upend the entire crystal-growing community, Bartosz believes it's another thing to add to chemists' toolkits. And I would be very happy if this simple system is on the bench of some chemists in, let's say, in industry. You know, if my substance is not crystallizing by traditional methods, hey, maybe I should try, you know, spinning it around, right? And it's going to broaden the repertoire of, of methods that are available. Nomi Chain, who you heard from earlier and who wasn't associated with Bartosz's study, welcomed any new method which could help her with the dark art of crystallization. You know, when you want a crystal of a target protein and you're desperate to do it, you'll use anything. And if that works for you, then that's, uh, you know, one of the methods may lead to the, the drug now against coronavirus. You never know. So you need methodology and it needs to keep coming because, you know, there's more and more targets, more problem to get crystals. And uh, the problem is getting more acute rather than less. That was Nomi Chain from Imperial College London, right here in the UK. You also heard from Bartosz Grabowski 
from Olsen National Institute of Science and Technology in South Korea. You can find Bartosz's paper over at nature.com. Finally on the show, it is, of course, time for the news chat. And I'm joined here in the studio by Nisha Gain and Nikki Phillips, Nature's European Bureau Chief and Asia-Pacific Bureau Chief, respectively. Hi, both. Hello. Hello. First today, let's talk about coronavirus, as we so often do. And the usual caveats yet again apply. This is a developing story, and we're recording this on Tuesday morning. So listeners, go to nature.com slash news for all the latest breaking news in this one. Nisha, what's been happening since the last time we were on air? So since last week, the coronavirus has spread. The coronavirus has spread quite quickly to quite a lot of other countries. And at first blush, that seems quite alarming. But it's probably worth saying that many of these countries, I think there are now 60 or more that have reported cases of coronavirus. Many of them just have one or a couple of cases. Nevertheless, the number of infections worldwide has increased. It's now more than 90,000 in total, but the vast majority of those are still in China. About 80,000 of them are in China. The number of deaths as well has also risen to more than 3,000. Well, a couple of big uh, big announcements from the WHO. One is that they still haven't labelled this outbreak a pandemic. And, and the other one is a big report that came out of a meeting in China uh, last week. Yes, that's right. So the discussions around pandemic continue. They still haven't labelled it as a pandemic, but they have raised the global alert level for this outbreak to very high, which is the highest possible level they can, short of calling it a pandemic. But some of the most interesting things that have come out of the World Health Organization over the past week are a large report that has looked at cases in China, a big analysis of the many tens of thousands of cases that we've seen in China. And from that, we have gleaned some details about how this virus is transmitted, and also whether it's mutating. Uh, and it seems not to be mutating that quickly. Yeah, and samples taken from people between December and February are 99.9% similar, I understand. Yes, that's right. And we also uh, know some other things. The median age of people infected is 51. Most cases of the virus that had spread from person to person in China are within hospitals and jails and households. And that implies that close contact is required for this virus to spread between people. Um, and the other interesting thing that came out is this question of airborne spread, which has been something that scientists have been trying to figure out. And the China report said that airborne spread is not believed to be a major driver of transmission. And as I understand it, this report has also looked at how China has tried to contain this outbreak. Yes, that's right. And one of the uh, interesting things that has happened in the past week is a kind of shift in the way that this thing is spreading. So cases which were at first rising rapidly in China, the number of new daily cases now seems to be declining in the country. So whereas a week ago or perhaps two weeks ago, China was reporting new cases daily in the high hundreds, I think it's now reporting cases in the in the low hundreds. And the WHO attributes much of that to China implementing these unprecedented measures, these lockdowns that uh, quarantined, you know, effectively tens of millions of people in their city. And meanwhile, it's now cases outside China that seem to be rising more rapidly on a daily basis. Outside of China, then, efforts are stepping up to prevent transmission. And we've got a story about one effort in particular that is impacting researchers. 
Yes, this is something that directly affects the scientific community. It's the cancellation of conferences and, in one case, the cancellation of the American Physical Society's March meeting, and that is the biggest physics conference in the world. So that was a pretty big deal. Yeah, and our colleague Davide Castelvecchi was en route to the conference. In fact, he'd made it as far as Denver, where it was due to be held. And we can hear from him now, actually. He chatted to Nature earlier this week about the cancellation and explained how some of the 11,000 delegates to the conference are adapting to the situation. Uh, Here's a little clip from the interview. Some of the people who ended up uh, sort of stranded in Denver decided to uh, have informal gatherings and and what people call unconferences, which means you get together uh, without any prearranged schedule and and whoever wants to give a talk gives a talk. And at the same time, there's people who are going to record their uh, own talks as videos and upload them some groups of physicists went further and they they basically tried to recreate the schedule of the conference as a series of webinars. So they set up an online spreadsheet where people could post links to their live talks that will happen at the same time that they were supposed to give the talks in Denver. So lots going on there, Nisha. This is a particularly, you know, serious case of it because it's such a huge conference. But physicists are uh, trying to do their best. And this is not the only conference that we have heard of that's been cancelled. Of course, many had been postponed in China uh, in the past few months, but now many conferences and meetings are being cancelled. So we've heard that some will be trying to go virtual or online only, or that some will simply be postponed until uh, we hope that this thing abates. But this is an interesting experiment for scientists to see whether they can do meetings without the travel, which is relentless for many of them, and of course creates a large carbon footprint. Well, listeners, to read more about the ongoing outbreak and to hear the full interview with Davide, head over to nature.com slash news. In the meantime, though, let's move on to the next story in today's news chat. And Nikki, it's about the bushfires in Australia. Um, You appeared on the show a few weeks ago to talk about this. But in case somebody missed that, could you give us a quick overview of what's been going on? So listeners might remember that earlier this year and at the end of last year, Australia experienced what was a fairly unprecedented bushfire event. Um, We had hundreds of fires which burned probably in excess of 11 million hectares over several months. It destroyed thousands of homes, uh, at least 34 people lost their lives and the toll on wildlife is hard to really assess but you know, probably in the order of millions, maybe even a billion native animals. Uh, so yeah, it was a pretty uh, devastating event. And understandably, researchers were keen to try and work out the role that climate change was playing in this fire season. Was it making it worse or not? And, uh, and it seems like we've got an update on that. Yeah, the results are in actually of this big study that was trying to work out whether and to what extent human-induced climate change played a role in the bushfire season this year. So researchers found that uh, climate change actually contributed to the conditions of the bushfires by about 30%. And that sounds like quite a lot, but um, actually they think that's quite a conservative estimate. When you say 30%, then was that in, in terms of it made it 30% more severe or increased the likelihood of it by 30%? Yeah, so that's 30% more likely. And in terms of what the researchers were looking at, I think we learned before that there were maybe lots of individual factors that could feed into the risk of a fire. Did they find that one was more likely than another? And what sort of things are they looking at? Yeah, so overall, they were looking at this thing called fire risk, which is measured by something called a fire weather index, which takes into account 
temperature, wind, rainfall, and some other variables. So they were looking at that measure as a whole, and that's what they found increased by 30%. Um, They also looked at individual factors, so temperature and drought conditions, so rainfall. So they were able to find a very clear signal in the temperature, that temperature has increased because of climate change, and that factor has contributed to increased fire risk. They weren't actually able to see whether climate change has influenced the rainfall measure that they were looking at. So that was quite interesting. Um, and I think there's a lot of debate in the community about how we go about accurately measuring the impact that climate change could have on rainfall and therefore droughts in Australia. Well, what are the researchers involved in this work saying about this then, Nikki? So overwhelmingly, they're saying that this sort of attribution study will help us understand what the risks are in the future. Um, And that could feed into the sorts of things that planning agencies like emergency services and government organisations and not-for-profit organisations might need to prepare for future fire seasons. I mean, the other thing to say is that they also think this estimate is quite conservative. Um, Models aren't very good at modelling local uh, heatwave conditions, so the increase in temperature that we see um, observed. So, you know, the chances are that the contribution of climate change to this year's season could have been bigger than 30%. Well, sobering stuff indeed. Listeners, head over to nature.com slash news for more on that story. And uh, all that remains to say is, Nisha, Nikki, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks. Thanks for having me. That's all for now. But before you skip to the next podcast you've got lined up, we've got a video you might want to hear about. It's all about Kias, a type of power, and how they've got a surprising aptitude for statistics. Head over to youtube.com slash nature video channel for that. I'm Nick Howe. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. See you next time. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.